You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I'm speaking with Lou Anders. He's the editor of Pyre Books. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure, as always. Lou, you know, I just got the latest uh, uh, Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss uh, fantasy. It's called, um, here we go, uh, Bones of the Dragon. And, and I have to say that as I read this book, I was really surprised. It has a lot more detail, a lot more grit. I mean, it begins with a look at a village where that's experiencing something, the fantasy equivalent of a financial collapse. And I, I'm thinking that, you know, from what the kind of stuff that you've been bringing out, we're seeing a, a real uh, sea change in the, the fantasy genre, aren't we? I think we absolutely are. You know, it, it's interesting. I'm currently in the midst of putting together a sword and sorcery anthology with Jonathan Strawn for Harper Eos. And at the start of it, we, when we were inviting our contributors, we talked about how we wanted to do sword and sorcery as distinct from epic fantasy. And a lot of the response we got back, or at least some of the response we got back, was they aren't distinct anymore. That all of the things that you associate with, with sword and sorcery, the grit, the, the, the focus on individual characters, the, uh, the characters who are morally compromised, or, 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 or you know, the, the grays and shades of grays, are now finding their way back into epic fantasy and informing that genre heavily. And, all of the most exciting stuff, or a large percentage of the most exciting stuff that's happening in fantasy today, you know, whether it's Patrick Lupus or, or Joe, Joe Abercrombie or Steve Erickson, it's this, this gritty fantasy. And it does seem to be the sensibilities of S&S reinforming the epic. And uh, I think um, also we're seeing uh, one of the things that fantasy, I think, is proving to be really adept at uh, is talking about the present in our real world in a couple of really, addressing a couple of really direct issues. I'm thinking of Richard Morgan, The Steel Remains, and how much that speaks to our current involvement and past involvement in wars in our world. I don't think that there is a book out there that I want to read more than The Steel Remains that I'm probably never going to, Um, just because it's the difficulty for me to read anything outside my list and the fact that that's the start of a trilogy. that, That book is screaming at me to be read. Um, but I agree. I think that, that um, Abercrombie is, is is writing post nine eleven fantasy in a lot of ways. You know? well, well, to explain that a little bit more, I I really like that Joe Abercrombie guy. I think he's an, an incredible guy. And again, I think very similar. Reminds me a lot of, of the the Richard Morgan as well. Well, he's writing fantasy with a realistic, uh, I might say, cynical take on human nature. You know, if a mm-hmm. giant, all-powerful wizard comes to you and tells you that he's the only one who can save the world, he's probably saving it for his own purposes. And, and that would be like uh, Bernie Madoff. <laughs> <laughs> it's the pyramid mm-hmm. scheme of fantasy. And, and you know, this brings me uh, brings me to something. I know that you you're uh, bringing the, the Raven books over, absolutely, uh, James Barkley. And you know, I heard him speak on a, on a panel panel on fantasy economics. And I think this is something that's become more and more a part of fantasy. And, and I wonder if you'd care to talk about how it plays out. You know, it, tell us a little bit about the the economics of Abercrombie's world because I think they're important. 
Well, you know, it, it actually, this flashes back. I remember having a conversation with Lee Monoset about his fantasy, and, and he raised an issue which has killed so many manuscripts from me since he brought it up, which is how does the Dark Lord feed all those faceless minions? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I actually rejected a manuscript after talking to Lee on that basis, where I realized there were just way too many faceless minions and not enough farmland to support them. Um, and it's also interesting because I, my my you know my my great economic science fiction writer David Lewis Edelman, who's who's completing the third of his his uh, Jump Two Two Five trilogy right now, has been talking online about the fact that he may be working on a dark fantasy next. Mm-hmm. And I can see he'd be well suited for it. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's it's the politics of Joe's world and the politics of uh, Tom Lloyd that you um, that we're we've just brought out his first book, The Storm Collar. The second one comes out in March. He has a degree in international relations. Really? Now that's a that's yeah. also a perfect. You know, it, it strikes me that's the absolutely perfect uh, educational background for somebody who wants to write well, uh, epic oh, fantasy. Go ahead. Uh, no, that go ahead. We we have a we're bringing out Joel Shepard's Sasha, which is the first in his Trial of Blood and Steel Quartet, and it it again is is just steeped in politics. Um, Joel's created a world where he has oh I don't know twenty different kingdoms, and they've all got rivalries. But not only do they have rivals, they've also all got class structures. So the king may not be representative of the pot of the peasants of the population under him, and you've got to understand the strata inside the country as well as that country's relationship to its neighbors. Well, and this is something that's proving to be really necessary again in the real world where you have uh, populations that aren't always approving of the um, act foreign uh, diplomacy that their leaders are giving them. I think, you know, the United Kingdom's a perfect example of that where they highly disapproved of the special relationship once it, that special relationship had, was between Blair and Bush. And I think you were seeing a lot of the echoes of that in, mm-hmm. in fantasy. Absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see what effect Obama has on fantasy. <laughs> uh, whoever thought we'd be talking about the effect that uh, presidential leaders had on the world of fantasy, but I think it's really germane right now. Just the presence of actual scientists in the presidential cabinet for the first time in eight years is going to have an effect on science fiction. Oh, that that's... Uh, particularly media science fiction. That's certainly true. And media science fiction as well as being, you know, getting a lot grittier. I'm thinking of Battlestar Galactica. I mean, uh, a show that in its first incarnation was exemplar of many things, uh, pretty much of what was wrong <laughs> with science fiction has been reborn as something that, that exa- is an example of what's right. Well, it's interesting. You know, with the, I'm sure you've heard about the casting of Matt Smith as the next Doctor. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of grumbling online that they should have cast a female or a, a, or a non-white actor. Mm-hmm. Now, I, with, with the caveat that Doctor Who has no obligation to cast anyone other than the person they think is the best person for the role, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's an entertaining show that's been on audience share. It's not trying to change the world. But just the fact that with the election of Obama, the, 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 the dominant cultural zeitgeist has been, how dare you cast a white actor? <laughs> uh, is interesting to me. You know, I, I hope that we'll see a few more leading men over here besides just Will Smith and Denzel Washington. You know, they've been they've been shouldering uh, the the burden of being the only non-white superstars for a while. Maybe they can have some company now. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. 
<laughs> if you've seen Tropic Thunder. I'm dying to. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> well, he'll, he'll, Hollywood and its great inventiveness will no likely uh, maybe start to take him seriously. Um, one of the things I'd like to, to talk about for you um, as a publisher, you know, we're going through some economically really difficult times. And as a publisher, could you talk about how this kind of focus on the grit of, of fantasy and, and fantasy's new focus on essentially the, a little bit more on the day-to-day lives rather than the epic journeys, um, do you think that's going to uh, come back to you in sales because people are, are more interested in seeing their own lives reflected in the works they read? Well, I'll say that our most successful, commercially successful works definitely follow that mold. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting because we heard from a, a major chain buyer at the beginning of December that the only thing that was selling for them was fiction and genre fiction, at, uh, specifically mystery, science fiction, and fantasy. And... Um, PW just report, released a report yesterday, I don't know if you saw, that book sales were actually flat against last year. Uh, there was only like a 0.3% decline overall, according to BookScan. But um, it was, there was a decline in adult nonfiction and a sharp increase in juvenile fiction and adult fiction. So I think that the, the the one silver lining on this dark time that we're in right now is that it's been wonderful for genre fiction. Well, I think it's going to be good for books, too, because in many ways, books are like a really great economic uh, entertainment value. I mean, you go to the movies, and, and you're you're out 25 bucks, and that you get two hours of entertainment and an hour of headache driving and parking. Um, you go buy a $25 book, and, and you've got, you know, if you take your time, you you've got three or four, you know, you know, maybe twelve to twenty-five hours of, of entertainment that is really a lot more involving than a movie, and and lasts a lot longer too. Well, we've always always heard that books did well in a recession, but going into this one, what worried me is that there had never been before this thing called the internet with its wealth of free content online, and I didn't, you know, books are certainly cheaper than buying yourself a, a luxury cruise or taking that skiing trip, but um, they aren't cheaper than going to YouTube. And so, again, I'm really, really gratified to see that, that the age-old wisdom that, that books thrive in, in dark economic periods has held up in this one, given the different circumstances. Well, I think, too, that, you know, it's a, that the Internet and re- the things you can read and see on the Internet are fund- it's a fundamentally different kind of... Uh, entertainment experience and the kind of entertaining experience you get either out of watching a movie on your television set or watching a movie in a theater or reading a book. I think there's a lot, to my mind, the internet is in general a lot more transient. And I'll bring up The Wobble, which is, uh, you know, I I just did a piece on this for NPR. And it's a really great idea to turn those 10 minutes of looking at gawker.com to 10 minutes of reading an installment of a wobble. But that's about all you can really take looking at the screen and the computer itself as an environment for experiencing entertainment. It tends to distract because it can do so many other different things. I mean, you've got a book in front of you. It's not going to – you can't read email on your book. (laughs) And it's going to be – your attention is going to be focused on the book. 
Absolutely, and I, I. But that was a marvelous piece. Although I was struck by the fact that the lady you spoke to didn't talk about the economic model to sustain it. But I, I don't know if you'd like me, but the internet only serves to make me buy more books. That's and that's what I think the internet will do, and that's exactly what it does for me. Every time I I start poking about, I start, oh my god. What is this? I haven't heard of this. Now I have another thing. What, what is it going to do with my credit card balance? Um, you know, I want to get back to the fantasy for a little bit because one thing that I think is interesting is that while we've seen this enormous burst in interest in fantasy and primarily, I think, based on the success of Harry Potter and these kind of young adult fictions, I think it's really interesting that the fantasy genre isn't responding to this unilaterally and trying to turn everything into a young adult book. I mean, the kind of books you're publishing, Tom Lloyd and stuff, I mean, I think most precocious teens could read them, but they're pointedly... um, there are books for adults, and I think this is interesting that, that fantasy is making itself a little more complicated and grittier and darker and more intense, not dialing it back to, to bring in the 12-year-olds. Well, one, the children who read Harry Potter are now adults. Mm-hmm. started with it. So. <laughs> a good point. Uh, two, half its audience always was adults. <laughs> yes. You know, um, I mean, every adult I know has read them. Mm-hmm. And three... You know, I think to, 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 to pull in the politics, I think that on the one hand, people are, want the hope that, and, that fantasy provides. They want the excitement and the sense of wonder and the belief. You know, fantasy is about belief, and they want the belief now that, that fantasy provides them. At the same time, you know, the last administration has opened their eyes about a great many things. And so I think that belief has to be colored by a feet-on-the-ground uh, realism, and that that's what we're seeing. Well, now, tell me about some of the kinds of manuscripts you're seeing uh, and bringing in up, uh, coming up. I, I know that you're bringing up over, finally, thank you, the Mark Chadbourne Age of Misrule novels. Could you give me kind of your take on those and, and uh, tell me uh, what we can expect with them and, and when when, we'll, when we, will we see them? Well, we will see them in May, June, and July. We're going to bring out all three in trade paperback with fabulous new covers from John Picasso, three in three months. And um, How would you describe them yourself? Well, I have described them as uh, one part Harry Potter, one part Lord of the Rings, one part Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus, and one part Stephen King's Dark Tower. Um, he has taken the classic fantasy quest of a group of people who have to come together. And you notice that all the most successful books, by the way, whether we're talking about Ender's Game or Harry Potter, are about teams of people who have to learn who they are as they learn to trust each other. And he's taken that scenario, the the five people, the brothers and sisters of dragons, who have to come together and journey across England on a quest to stop the equivalent of a dark lord. But it takes place in a modern Britain where all of the gods and demons, the Tuatha del Danann, if I pronounce, and the Formori of Celtic mythology have returned. You know, it's almost like what uh, Terry Goodkind is doing now, where he's showing how the world fell and became magical. Mm-hmm. And it's that situation where the magical creatures are coming back, the classic quest fantasy mapped onto that. But at the same time, he's going around to all of the real, you know, sacred sites and magical places in Britain, the Stonehenges and and Carnes and Burrows and old buried tombs, and showing how the quote unquote truth of Arthurian legend, not a historical King Arthur, but the 
the spiritual truth that the King Arthur myth encodes plays out in a modern context. It, it's a really wonderful book, and, I, and one of the things I, I like about him is that um, for, for a novel that has all the thrills and the plot drivers of fantasy, to, to have like characters from modern times, you know, people that I can identify with, uh, going through that is is really interesting. And you know, there's another. You brought up another name, Terry Terry Goodkind. I mean, I gotta say that back in you know when I was in college to date myself a bit, um, when those when the 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 Sword of Shannara came out, <laughs> I just thought they were kind of like a fluffy abomination, and, and so to see. Uh, Good kind come around full circle to the to a, in his latest books, as you say, embrace some of the kind of the same grit we're talking about with Chadbourne, with Lloyd, with Abercrombie and Morgan. Although I think Abercrombie and Morgan are guys who like gargle razors or something. <laughs> yeah. But um, to to see all these uh, you know authors who were once a lot milder and a little more um, acceptable. To, to really embrace this kind of uh, more adult and gritty world, I think it's really heartening for the for the genre. Well, you know, it it, it it it's interesting because I mean, fantasy is growing up. Although, to give credit where credit's due, I mean, Michael Moorcock has been doing this stuff for decades. Yeah, no. You know? Um, yeah, I was one of those people who who had those uh, early early D A W books of. Uh, you know the the Elric books, and for that matter, I mean, um, Robert Howard, Robert E. Howard was doing it uh, before anybody else, really. I mean, how, how long before we see a Robert, uh, Library of America Robert Howard collection? Boy, I don't know, but it better not be too long. You know, I, the, I, <laughs> I put money; we see it within the next two years. I I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're you're definitely right. And uh, um, for that matter, uh, Michael Moorcock. Mm-hmm. He needs. He needs. Be he need I'm I'm so thrilled with the new Elric editions and and you know he Moorcock needs to be acknowledged and proclaimed for the toweringly influential figure that he is. Uh, and one of I would you care to talk about you know I have to say that you know you as an editor are uh, at the you know a, a linchpin in this reinvention. So as an editor, do you ever step back and think of what you're doing? In terms of the the you know the literary landscape, uh, I I do, I do quite a bit. Um, you have to be you know, you have to keep one eye on that. And then, as I was talking with Chadbourne a few months back, Stephen King writes that you can't lose your taste for pizza as a writer. If you lose your taste for pizza, you lose your audience. <laughs> but, and so I feel like you've got this dual responsibility to to. You know, nothing that we do will work if it is not first and foremost entertainment. It must be entertaining. If it is not entertaining, it doesn't matter what how brilliant it is or what it's trying to say or how thematically important it is or how relevant it is to modern times. If it's dead boring, who cares? It has to be entertainment. But within that context, you know, I'm very excited by works that 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 are offerings to the body of fantasy literature that have something relevant to say to our modern times that are going to address and engage what we're going through in new and exciting ways. The thing that I've been noticing is that, and I'm going to, you asked me about some of the stuff that's come up, so I'm going to try and cleverly work them in. Good. Um, very excited about James Ng, who we're publishing in April with his novel Blood of Ambrose, and then following up with his sequel, 
which will either be titled The Crooked Way or Turn Up This Crooked Way. We're still debating that. And um, But Ng wrote a post on the Black Gate blog about the fact that some fantasy tropes might have been done to death, and could you save unicorns? Or had they been, quote, my little pony to death? <laughs> which I thought was just brilliant. Uh-huh. But I am seeing a lot of people playing with tropes that have been that have been the province of the more commercial post-Tolkien imitative fantasy for a while that the more, quote, serious fantasy writers might not have wanted to touch that they're now embracing wholeheartedly. I'm seeing a lot of dragons. I'm seeing a lot of elves. And, you know, I'm seeing them in really interesting contexts. You know, looking at just what I publish, Mark Chadbourne's dragons versus Justina Robson's dragons versus Tom Lloyd's dragons. You know, uh, uh, Justina Robson uses dragons in a, in a very Chinese way, which is interesting because all of her other fantasy tropes are Western. But her dragons are long serpentine forms that come, you know, that brush by you and you feel like you've had a touch with divinity. And they're, they've never spoken to anyone and they're, and they're, they're harbingers of fate and change and luck. Um, Tom Lloyd's dragon, which only appears a couple times, uses it very, very, very sparingly. His dragon is, is, is the most magnificent dragon in the tradition of, you know, Tolkien smog, the enormous, giant, you know, quick-to-anger, colossal beast in whose presence you are quaking. And uh, the dragon is a, is, a, is a nuclear warhead that you're standing in front of. That reminds and, me of uh, uh, the Dragon Griot by Lucius Shepard, you know, before it died. If you're familiar with that. Uh, I am not. Oh, well, he uh, has a number of uh, stories set around the rotting corpse of a dragon that covers part of a continent. Oh, wow. And, it very, and it's still somewhat alive. Mm-hmm. Parts of it are still alive, but there are whole civilizations and societies that live inside of it. And, and it still affects what happens around it. And, and what you're describing sounds like that when it was still alive. That kind of, as you say, an unknowable uh, ineffable quality to the dragons, which I think is really interesting. And then, of course, we've got Mark Chadbourne's dragons, which are manifestations of the earth energy. They're they're living creatures, but they're also symbolisms of the power of the earth and the spirit. And uh, well, I, I um, Chadbourne stuff I think is is very interesting because uh, because it, as I say, you can almost see these his stuff as as a contemporary blockbuster movie. Uh, um, with with a lot of depth, he also, truthfully, um, the um, again unknowability in the way that the Tuatha and I can't remember. I'm, I'm not going to try to pronounce that. The way the Tuatha, etc., uh, are they really remind me out of something like something out of a Philip K. Dick story. So I think a lot of uh, fantasy is also taking some good cues from science fiction in terms of um, making things. Uh, uh, have some logic and structure to them and not just say, oh, magic. I have a, I had a revelation last night, and I don't know how to actualize this in the real world, but I'm going to put it out there in the hopes that somehow a chain of dominoes will, will bring it into fruition. Del Toro has to direct Age of Misrule. Uh, that, that sounds pretty good. Uh, uh, I'm ready for that, yeah. Um, it... it yeah, he he. I wrote 
Chad Bourne this morning, and, and mm-hmm. having just finished another of his novels last night, and I said, you're a fucking mad genius, and I want you to be my new spiritual advisor. You know, there, there, are, there are certain things that when a writer writes about them, they write about them in such a convincing and authentic way that they, they, they wrote the book on it, to, you know, to borrow a phrase. Um, you know, his explanation of the meaning behind Arthurian myth has to be the explanation. It just has to be. There can't be another one. I'm, I'm, although, I should say, Chris Robertson's writing a book called End of the Century, which is a science fictional take on the Arthurian legend, and I felt the same way about it when I finished it. Um, that also comes out in April. <laughs> a lot of King Arthur. This is, this is another one of those tropes that people haven't touched for a while, and now I'm seeing a lot of. Because, you know, we've got Chad Warren taking the Arthurian legend and saying this was, this was the encoding of ancient spiritual truths. Mark actually sent me an email today that I'm going to quote from without permission in the interest of, of furthering his genius, where uh, he says, I wanted to use the fantasy tropes for a spiritual quest rather than a real-world or secondary-world quest, utilizing all my readings and studies and broader investigations and encoding it beneath a consumable story, essentially combining ancient knowledge and modern thought through a form of communication that transmits the information past the conscious mind and into the subconscious. See, that's why he has to be my spiritual advisor. I can see um, why. <laughs> Now, Robertson's story, uh, which oddly has many, many parallels with Ian McDonald's Brazil. It takes place in three timelines like Brazil does. It has swords that have been honed to plank length so they can cut through anything, as also Brazil did. And it also deals with some of the science fictional tropes that I don't want to spoil because in both Brazil and, and the end of the century, you don't find them out until close to the end of the book. But uh, they were both writing the books at the same time. I was involved, you know, with both of them and didn't tell the other that they were freaking me out, that they were writing the same novel. Although Ian's takes place three different times in Brazil, whereas uh, Robertson's book takes place in, in 2000 London, in like 638 AD London with the real King Arthur, and in Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee with a Sherlock Holmes, Sexton Blake-like detective called Sanford Blank, investigating uh, a theft. And he goes back, and Chris did just massive research in the book, and he starts, he, 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 he looks up not just in some of the original King Arthur myths, but some of the other famous kings in and around Britain, many of whom are buried under hills and will return, and some French kings. And he thinks he's uncovered the, the, the two earliest stories about two different kings, one of which is Arthur and one of which I think is Robert the Bruce, but I don't want to say. But he convinced me in talking me through it, and I can't reproduce it here, but you should have him on the show. Um, he completely convinced me that there's an Ur myth that's missing that you have to have that explains all the subsequent king myths. Interesting. Well, uh, that's, uh, maybe that's the... as. Uh... Oh God, uh, Edward Edward uh, Whittemore once said, "Maybe that's the text of the original Bible." Yep. <laughs> and then to bring it around, you know, we're coming out with James Ing's Blood of Ambrose in April. James' character is Morlock Ambrosius, the last name of which should sound familiar. Yes, yes, he's uh, he was one of the now now this is this Morgan Le Fay? Is this the? Uh, yep. This is this is. This is the, the 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 line of Merlin, and I can't pronounce the 
it's demu, uh, the, the 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 water nymph that seduces Merlin in some versions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so as an Ambrosi, Morlock is uh, immune to fire. His blood burns with contact with the air, and he's the master of all magical making and a hunchback. <laughs> well, and a dry drunk. <laughs> well, hey, let's put him in charge of the United States. <laughs> Well, see, that brings us back to politics. Ing was also writing about how he felt like, and this is interesting because, you know, the criticism that's always leveled at fantasy is that it's, or, or a lot of fantasy is that it's wishful, you know, it, it, it's, it's medievalism light, mm-hmm. or it's... Uh, wishful fulfillment with swords. Exactly, and, it, and, it, and then it's a little too obsessed with monarchy for, for, for we uh, citizens of a democracy. And Ing was writing the other day, and he may have swept aside all these concerns from my brain with one fell swoop, that the political system in fantasy is allegorical, because fantasy is largely, not exclusively, but in a large part concerned with coming-of-age stories. Mm -hmm. And so you need a landscape into which the young man or woman coming-of-age can enact their actions and have consequences, and the political landscape that exists around them is a reflection of what they're going through internally. Wow, that's interesting. Well, now, now when is the loss of freedom they feel, and then the gaining of freedom, which you know, being handed the keys of the kingdom, et cetera. Well, uh, and I'm therefore gonna... we shouldn't take the political system seriously mm-hmm. as an endorsement of medievalism or feudalism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As monarchy, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not endorsing monarchy yet. <laughs> I've been <laughs> speaking with Lou Anders. Uh, he's the publisher of Pyre Books. Thank you for joining me, Lou. My pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.